Hi, this is Making Connections, a podcast by the Flame University Writing Center. Before I introduce our guest for today, I wanted to problematize the concept of a writing center and we'll see how this relates later to what we're going to be talking about today. So in a writing center, we work with writers across disciplines. That means we're working with writers across methodologies, typically in one-on-one sessions. We emphasize the value of empathy in the writing process. And uh, the third thing which I want us to keep in mind is that I'm a novelist, so I write fiction. So there are these three elements, the fact that you're working across disciplines, that you're talking about empathy, and the place of fiction in this whole enterprise. Now, with this in mind, uh, my guest for today is Sabha Siddiqui, who is Assistant Professor of Psychology here at Flame. Sabha has uh, co-edited a book on Islamic psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic Islam, and she's also worked extensively on faith healing in work which has been published in book chapters and journal articles. Today, I'm going to be focusing on talking with her about her doctoral work, uh, her PhD on faith healing, which was investigating how medical science and traditional or alternative medicine intersect in mental health provision. Sabha used methods from critical psychology, ethnography and social geography and also fiction. So before we get to methodology, which I guess is the heart of today's podcast, I want to welcome Sabha to the show. Hi, Okay, so uh, maybe you could start by uh, telling us about your thesis research on faith healing. What was it about? Right. So my research was, like it looks at faith healing mm-hmm. as, a, an, as an area where we can look at how mental health service provision is being done in India. Mm-hmm. Because uh, at faith healing shrines, we have people who come from all, like all strata of society. Uh, looking for help, for support, for cure. And uh, very often these people also go to doctors, they also go to psychologists. And uh, so the question that is there at Faith Healing is that the people who come here, what is it that they are coming for? Mm. And what is it that they get in mm. return, like uh, for going there? So my research was based at the Meera Dattar Darga okay. in Gujarat. And uh, I lived there for eight months. Uh, like in the in the village of Unava, mm. and I was looking at how people like come to the shrine. What are their stories of coming to the shrine? So I was building their narratives, mm. and I was also looking at the space in which the shrine is located. So I was very interested in like the like the environment, the social environment of the shrine mm. within the village. Mm. So I had gone in originally thinking that my research is going to have two parts: the site which is the, you know, like the geography yeah. around, of the shrine and around the shrine. And the second is the subject, means the people who are coming there and they are called, at Miradatatarga, they are called the Savali, you know, mm-hmm. the seeker or the person with a question. The Savali isn't the person with, who's yeah. asking a question. Yes. Okay. And uh, so I thought I would have two parts to my research, like two halves. And then I realized that there's another part that I hadn't anticipated. Mm. Uh, which is the ghost Hmm. and uh, but it was still so I mean I was still looking at faith healing but I was wondering what is it like so most people come to the shrine because uh, they are told that they are being haunted 
they are or they are being possessed by ghosts or you know they have got some evil eye working on them and their family mm-hmm. uh, so all their bad luck and misfortune all their illness and betrayal and deceit may be because of you know the work of this uh, like of the ghost something mm-hmm. otherworldly so uh, that is how actually thinking about the ghost became quite significant to me okay so the people who come to the shrine where you were uh, researching they are they, you know they might have mental health issues of their own or they might not but the ghost is the common factor is that how it is yes so i mean people who come there do not actually uh, they would be they are slightly averse to thinking of themselves as having mental health issues okay mm. uh but uh, it's not that they would not have come across those diagnoses you know before yeah. they've come to the shrine yeah. but they come to the shrine and here at the shrine they are given an understanding of their problem mm. as being uh one of haunting okay so the shrine also propagates that yes. idea yes it yeah. is very much within the way these shrines work Okay. uh and they can like there are shrines of all religious denominations that mm-hmm. do this kind of work that you know like people who come with a problem will be seen as being affected by you know something that is within a what should i say religious world view mm-hmm. and people who then feel like those their problems are adequately expressed by that world view then start also saying that yeah they are being haunted they are possessed mm-hmm. and that's how you know they come to occupy that kind of a diagnosis that has been given by the shrine hmm. just because it occurs to me right now in our writing center in the information that we've set out one of the things we say there is that we help you overcome your demons in inverted commas and i suppose that's not just um, maybe that's not just fanciful <laughs> the use of that word but okay so so you said okay the idea of the ghost you felt you felt it required something more than you had come equipped with is that oh uh, yeah absolutely so i mean i was looking at uh, you know i mean i was looking at the site i was through a mapping exercise you know mm-hmm. so i would go with uh, people from the village uh, you know and try to create a map of the village mm-hmm. and where it where the shrine is located within that village mm-hmm. but that was a, a part the other part when i was talking to the sawalis was i was trying to ask them what their stories were and what was the experience of being haunted mm-hmm. and then i realized that they were i mean the very reason why they were here about the experience of being haunting was a very difficult experience to talk about mm-hmm. so most of them would talk about the experience of being haunted without being able to talk about what was haunting them mm-hmm. and i found it very interesting so the whole shrine has a whole like you know i mean it is all, it is kind of centered around this experience yeah. and for many people to actually talk about it itself was difficult mm-hmm. and this is over many months and that's when i thought that you know like if i want to talk about the ghost or what is the ghost that bothers mm. that is bothering them perhaps i need a different methodology in order to understand their experience of the ghost the questioning the you know the subject object dynamic was not okay i think oh i think it was something different than that it was that uh, it was not only their experience of the ghost that i was like you know i, I it's like because their narratives were telling me what their experience was okay mm. but i was just wondering what is it that they find so difficult to speak about mm. you know so like because i mean if they are here because they have they feel they are being haunted and they are being haunted by 
ghosts or ghostly experiences mm-hmm. but they can't talk about that directly so they find indirect ways about uh, for referring to their ghosts mm-hmm. you know they give names to their ghosts okay. and sometimes they say that they know the real name but they will not want to speak it aloud right because of this idea that names have power of their own so to sometimes take the name of the ghost directly might be like giving too much power mm. to the ghost or the fact is that by calling out the name of the ghost the ghost might turn their attention back mm. to the person who's trying so much to get rid of it mm. so uh, it was like so there would be various ways of referring to you know the ghost in different narratives mm. and uh, like a whole vocabulary or terminology around that mm. but not to refer to the ghost itself yeah so it strikes me that another person in your position might have either felt that that was adequate what you had or have felt that this is something um stubborn in the people you're studying which you can't really do some do much about but you felt that you should make a change on in, in your approach which i think is interesting uh, can you just uh, you were mentioning the um, the fact that they see the ghost as peripheral always and that has to do with the difficulty in nailing down something about it yes so i mean like a lot of the stories around ghosts i mean uh, not only with my uh, with my the participants to my research but mm. in ghost stories people always see ghosts like as if from the corner of their eye they mm. hear the sounds in another room mm. and uh, there is um, like then like you know being aware of the ghost is always like a, it is a peripheral experience you know mm. and i was kind of surprised that my narratives were also you know like the the notion of the ghost became peripheral even in there even though we were actually talking mm. about ghosts now and still it the, like the speech about the ghost was peripheral you mm. know so i mean there's something about like why the why ghosts can only be seen as if from the side of your eye you mm. know it's like there's something like you know you it's like to look and speak about the ghost directly is difficult mm. and so i thought even the methodology needs to reflect that that mm. the methodology cannot be a kind of direct exposition you know like some kind of uh you know like some kind of uh scientific exploration mm. as to like what is the ghost let's like weigh it and yeah. let's see you know let's see how many ring tree rings it may have how old is it and things like that mm. we might need some other methodology to look at what this ghost is doing mm. in this in this mm. landscape and then uh, you wrote a work of fiction yes yes so i think i came back from my field work and i felt that uh, like i finished my field work in about 2016 mm. and i came back and uh, i was just f- like you know like this kind of feeling that you know something has happened that i've been unable to tap into you know was quite strong and mm. I, like i felt like i had as if missed the point of mm. doing field work you mm. know i had gotten my interviews i had gotten my maps i had done my observation you know all of that i had all of that and yet i had as if somehow missed something and uh, since i didn't know what i had missed either i thought let me write it in the form of a story and see where that story goes so i wrote a i wrote a ghost story mm-hmm. and uh, i mean i was in my, in my ghost story i was trying to think about what i may have been like missing mm-hmm. or not and so like uh, i wrote out that ghost story and there was i had some like you know like trepidation if that could be included into my phd thesis itself mm. because uh, i mean it's not that fiction has not been a part of academic writing but i was very much based in a 
psychology slash education department mm. uh, in the UK. And I was not sure how it would be read, how a ghost story, a piece of fiction would be seen in this department, you know, mm. as being far too obscure or opaque. Mm. And uh, so I wrote it and I like I like I discussed it with my supervisory panel that, you know, is it fine? And we had quite a bit of uh, like, you know, I mean, we were not really sure how that would work. So initially I put it in the appendix mm. as just like another, you know, like just to say that I had done this work. And uh, I was really surprised that when I went for my, uh, when I went for my defense, it was my examiners who said that they thought it could be brought into the body mm. of the thesis. And I was actually, I remember feeling so astonished that, uh, I mean, that it was seen as work, mm. you know, it was seen as academic work. And they asked me to put it back into, like, take it out from the appendix, put it into the body. And that's what I did. So this is the, my ghost story hmm. is the final chapter of my thesis. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about your ghost story in a minute. But I just want to ask you, the move that you made to hmm. write a story, can you recall how that happened? Because there's, a, there's obviously a leap there from sensing that something is missing but that doesn't that doesn't naturally lend itself to the thought to write a story so did that just happen okay or is there any particular mental process you can recall i i think i mean yeah there was some like i mean i did uh, first think about um, what it means to write about ghosts mm. you know and uh, i did like think about like who i'd want my like who my character would like you know the main characters would mm. have to be mm. and uh, like i mean i it was I mean it's a ghost story and I had to think if the ghost like what position the ghost story like the ghost would have to be in the story you know yeah no you're talking about the story as such mm-hmm. but I'm saying the thought of writing a story mm-hmm. of writing a short story let me write a short story about this mm-hmm. did that just was that a move you just made and you can't exactly say why you made that move and then you would work out what you're going to say in the story mm-hmm. but the yeah, idea of writing fiction mm-hmm. how did that happen if you can remember how that happened uh, I think we have, it was, uh, it's not as clear as perhaps, you know, like theoretical work, you know, that how I thought that, okay, this is what I want to do now. But I think it was that, uh, like, I, I remember this, uh, a line by Jacques Derrida, mm. uh, on, in his book on specters, you know, specters of Marx, where he says that, uh, we need to have a way to talk to the ghost. He's talking to the, about spectres in a mm. different way. And uh, he's like, I mean, if you want to speak to the ghost, mm. you know, and not about the ghost, is mm. there a method to do that? And I read this a long time back, and I was like, speaking to the ghost would be like like what insanity is made of, mm. <laughs> you know? Uh, perhaps, like, you know, it's like to not only speak about the ghost, but to speak to ghosts, you know? Uh, and uh, so... It seemed to me fiction seemed to be a way to speak yeah. about the ghost, but also to the ghost. So I was thinking that to like, I mean, if writers are talking about something, they might be, they, I mean, perhaps all writers are ghost writers, actually. Mm. They are always being spoken through what their story is. No, doing. That's, that's uh, so interesting because many fiction writers will also struggle to say exactly why you know what motivates them to write fiction but it also tells us where fiction enters the framework of knowledge because in 
trying to lay, uh, take hold of things which I cannot place in front of my vision. As you said, the ghost is peripheral. These are things you have to enter into. You can't observe them. You have to enter into them. And that precisely is what I think a fiction writer is doing, right? You're constructing a world. You're, you're, even the fact that it is creative and is full of choices uh, is also part of the, na- you know, it's part of the nature of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the, from the ground up, fiction is the, is the right, and it kind of fits. Fiction is the fitting way to deal with, uh, to deal with things which are immersed in your subjectivity. Right. Um, okay, so you said that your supervisors then, to your surprise, advised you to put it in the, uh, in the thesis as, uh, as such. What do you think that added to the thesis as a whole? Uh, I think uh, it. I think that actually, on one hand, my ghost story could be in the appendix still, mm. and it would have my thesis would have still managed to stand. Mm. Uh, because as I, you know, I, I think that you know my that feeling of discomfort that something is missing was an act of interpretation. You mm. know, in the narratives, I could have like left that out. And it would not have become. It would not have become apparent to everybody that mm. that is what is missing. Uh, so I think if I had not had the ghost story within the body of the text, you mm. know, and had it at the appendix, I think my thesis would still stand. Okay. But the to have it inside, to have it inside, actually makes like it changes the status of my writing mm. from uh, being something that is. Um, like you know i mean like i mean i kind of destabilize the certainty of my own speech mm. you know in the early sections by the time i come to the ghost story like i create a certain like you know like a uh, a moment where it is not sure like because the ghost story doesn't explain itself mm. it doesn't write it doesn't say much about what it is doing there and uh, it kind of so basically you know like it haunts mm. my thesis then and i i was i am fine with say a reader of my work mm. feeling uncomfortable because that was my experience of doing this research mm. i was uncomfortable and uncertain about what it meant to study faith healing yeah. so i'm quite kind of happy to give that experience yeah. to my readers in fact it occurs to me that having moved it from the appendix to the last chapter you could have moved it to the very center of the thesis <laughs> because something which permeates and haunts uh, is prob- is in any case what the story does. I mean, I guess that's the function the story plays. So even if you were so bold as to put it in the center, I would think that that actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, so now about the story itself, it's called The Manifest. And uh, so that that's one thing. The, the title for me is interesting, the, the manifest, and that's also the name of the ghost eventually in the story. So can you just tell us about the story a little, like what is, what is the story? Okay, I'd actually like to ask you, if you want the story with the intent, my intentions, or you just want the story? No, I suppose I was just reading it as a reader, and I didn't know it was part of a thesis. You know, what is the story about? and. Right. So uh, the story actually, because what I used finally was ethnofiction mm-hmm. as the way to think about the story. It was it was very much based in my observations mm-hmm. of this shrine and shrines like this. So it doesn't stick exactly to like uh, the physical description of the shrine I was doing my work at. 
but it also like it uses like characters like the characters that i i have thought about mm. have actually been kind of like influenced by the people i've met and the stories that they have told me but i was very clear that i wanted the story to be something i think about mm. uh so it so basically the frame is provided by my research yeah. and uh, by my observations my field notes mm. but then i think of like a family that finds themselves at an unnamed shrine it's never mentioned mm. inside the story which shrine uh the main protagonist uh is uh is called munni by the her family and uh it is she's brought there to the shrine for uh for treatment for healing mm. and uh the story is set through her eyes so it's like what she's seeing and what she is uh like you know what is being told to her and i think it's a bit of like like a, a bit of her stream of consciousness mm. so you know like we see what she sees mm. and we hear the conversations that are being told to her uh and uh it's like so the story starts with her coming to the shrine and uh it shows the different kinds of rituals that like she experiences which are very much part of how the treatment at the shrine happens, happens yeah. you know everything from the emphasis on cleanliness and hygiene to the kind of food that is served which is usually served by mm-hmm. patrons or devotees uh to the poor uh to like uh, the kind of every the everydayness of you know living at a shrine hoping to be healed right so all that is something that i show like right up to the point where the first uh, like the first communal treatment mm-hmm. begins mm-hmm. uh of uh, of munni and uh, so you know when the first act of what like you know i mean not a good translation but exorcism mm-hmm. is happening and uh, the lead up to it like i mean so at most shrines actually it's not the first day somebody comes to the shrine exorcism doesn't happen then okay. they they kind of get they stay at the shrine for some time they like kind of imbibe its uh, ways of working mm-hmm. and its ways of you know well being you know what they think it means to be well and like perhaps weeks later you know the treatment can start mm-hmm. uh and uh, that's where actually the story ends with the first treatment that she uh, she experiences you mm-hmm. know uh and a very big part of this treatment i i think i i mentioned it briefly before is the name mm-hmm. the name of the ghost is very significant because a, a lot of these shrines both temples and dargahs believe that to know the name of the ghost is to have power over it mm-hmm. so a lot of the early treatment would be about like a repetition about can you tell the name of the ghost can you like you know reveal it can and it's uh, it is actually quite like you no know, even to watch it you know there's kind of hypnotic repetition that it has mm. right and uh, and muni does give up a name now you mm. know she, she says my name is pratyakshita mm. which is a word i i mean it's uh, like i mean i was trying to say manifest you know yeah manifest uh, yeah yes like i am manifested mm. and uh, like the story this story ends with the name revealed you know mm. that she is pratyakshita and not munni and she reveals the name to somebody she calls baba mm. so what about this idea of baba which recurs in the uh, in the story the the concept baba and the hold the power that has right so i, I yeah that's an, another thing it's uh, about 
the overuse of the word baba at mm. the shrines mm. and perhaps uh, you know in like in lots of spaces in india where baba can be the word you call your father mm. it can be the word that you called an older man or a wise person mm. but it's also the name given like you know like a personal way of calling you know a saint or a religious guru mm. or a head a spiritual head mm. so uh, it's like it it was never it was never very clear to me that when you know like people are asking baba for help on at the shrine mm. who is it that they are referring to you know mm. because it could be so many mm. and so even in this story like muni calls her father baba mm. and she calls her healer baba and uh, she calls the saint who is presiding over the darga as baba mm. and uh, so you know like i was trying to keep some of that uncertainty that when people are asking for help who is it that they are asking it to you know like who is who do they think will help them mm-hmm. and so like uh, baba comes throughout and at the end it seems that she's calling like she knows the baba she is speaking to mm-hmm. uh and that the kind of uh, you know like that acknowledging of the saint as baba is also a work in progress which yeah. happens at the shrine yeah. and it also suggests that because baba is not just any word baba is a word that you use for someone who loves and provides so that um, the embodiment of that is important in your mental healing or in um, you know in freeing yourself of the ghost or in becoming aware of the ghost so i guess that also comes through in your story that and is and because just to go back to your overall research question or area of research the intersection of medical science and alternative medicine now in medical science as such we wouldn't necessarily be speaking about what baba represents right it's yeah. the it's the professional doctor it's not the baba yeah. uh, it's not the one who comes with with this kind of love or but in alternative medicine that is a factor right yeah i think i mean it if anything it just kind of uh, like i would say that medi- medical science where the doctor the figure of the doctor and the authority of the doctor is clear mm. also does some of this work because like a, a lot of people who come to say the shrine also go to doctors mm. and uh, i mean all of them do yeah. i i i didn't meet anybody at the shrine who hasn't been to a doctor mm. and in like i mean the ways they they talk about the people who will help them are very like they there are similarities they give the same kind of like what what should i say this kind of like a demand for like healing for release you know they ask their doctors for that kind of uh, like you know for that release of freedom as well like this like cure me of this pain mm. you know do anything i just don't want to feel hurt and you know uh, sick anymore and uh, they sometimes talk to their healers in the same way they speak to the saints in the same way mm-hmm. and sometimes i feel like doctors use that authority as well like you know that is given to them as people who can release people from pain mm-hmm. and illness mm-hmm. and uh, so the kind of power that the figure of the doctor has mm-hmm. i see as somewhat similar mm-hmm. to the power and authority of the healer mm-hmm. and the saint but the healer and the saint is acknowledging the fact or is overtly making it clear that their power also comes from their character and their saintliness and their goodness and that's yes. whereas the doctor is only saying that i know so knowledge but not love 
but the patient is looking for both his yes. and and maybe primarily for love is that yes yeah. yeah i mean uh, i think that's also why perhaps there is uh, that why faith healers are so very uh, like you know they are so they i mean they they found all over india hmm. and the world but they're also so popular is because they you know like i mean within their treatment is like ways of like listening to their people to their devotees there's a way of like responding to pain mm. and to disappointment and sadness mm. you know even perhaps giving them a bit of that you know like like a physical presence mm. a touch you know that you know experience of being cared for yeah so yeah certainly there is all of that i bet it's unfortunate then that these two things become completely split apart and um, at least from the side of science there's an anti th- there's a sort of antipathy towards uh, towards everything in traditional healing whereas at least this aspect is surely important i mean we expect the same from our doctors we expect the the humanity and yes uh, and i think that's not just uh, i mean this brings us not just to medicine but to so many fields so many fields of management and otherwise where there seems to be an attempt to reduce everything to objective processes and then companies struggle to understand why don't we have a good culture you know because yeah processes and execution of steps doesn't create a culture you do all that and you still have a terrible culture mm. because you're not attending to the the ghosts and mm. not via the uh, the root of empathy and okay so that's um, yeah i mean that i think there's a lot of food for thought there and now uh, just personally you know when i was looking at at your work and it made me again as i said i started with talking about the writing center because it made me realize that uh, why these things are connected you know why we say who are working in the writing center are working with people across disciplines so across methodologies which means that you're trying to start from a place which is prior to methodology uh and that is also it makes sense because methodologies can't be grounded on themselves they're grounded in something but that something is really subjective mm. and therefore it goes into the realm which you are exploring the realm of the ghost the realm of uh, that which cannot be placed in front of you and um and the kind of the world view of fiction or the approach of fiction is is how you enter enter this realm so therefore it makes me understand okay why am i working <laughs> at at a writing center and also the the concept of the baba which is central to the shrine uh, in as much as it represents empathy that's also something we talk about a lot and that's something which in writing center pedagogy figures a lot and this helps me understand why because that pre methodological space in order to enter into it you need to do that with empathy and then you know things like imagination beliefs attitudes it's in light of these that we see everything and how do you judge these things you judge them you know uh, you would judge them uh, is it empathetic is your imagination empathetic and i think even the move that you made to do this story i asked you how, why did you think of it and you didn't have a clear answer to that but that's because the it would have been because of empathy because you are relating to your subject in a way that you want to be generous and you want to give to it uh, and therefore you receive the inspiration to you know adopt the story the short story as the method so that's really interesting can you tell us about i mean something else that you're working on this uh, you you've coined this phrase the ghost as method are you going to be continuing any work on this yeah actually so i mean i 
I'm not certainly the originator of that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in 2010 was a book uh, by Chen Quanxing called Asia's Method, mm-hmm. which was to say that what if we were to create like a critical methodology that uses Asia as an idea mm-hmm. to locate, you know, knowledge. And uh, I mean th- that book, which was thinking about. a uh, decolonization mm. of ideas mm. you know was quite was quite significant even for me to think about uh, like you know if you're trying to change the center mm. you know perhaps you need a like you need a really different way of going about it mm. you know so i mean he says asia as method mm. you know uh, but then also uh, erica berman mm. uh, i think just two years back she wrote the childless method mm. which again was uh, so you know like now this as method thing is to say okay. how do you like if you're trying to do different work perhaps then you need a different way of like you know you need a different place to start mm. so you know i see this as creating mini standpoints mm. you know like it's like a place where you can look at the truth from for a brief while mm. i think that especially the ghost if i was to think of the ghost as a method mm. as a critical tool uh it's just like i mean it's difficult to occupy the place of the ghost mm. you know the ghost does not allow that but it gives you a moment of like you know like like the whole scene changes if mm. you were to think of it from the position of the ghost you know yeah. as my story does like between munni and pratyakshita yeah. you know if the standpoint can change yeah and that can then create a different version of the truth or reality yeah and i think we definitely need that in the social sciences a space for uncertainty mm-hmm. we need a way of uh, looking like you know of uh, creating we of creating moments where we challenge our own work and we kind of like take a step back and say that you know like what we are doing might have fundamental like uh, gaps mm yeah and uh, instead of saying that okay you know there are gaps and that is just nature of what our work is i'm saying perhaps we can think about what those gaps you know like are there ways of talking about gaps that are generative yes so, so i thought the ghost is method was a generative way of looking at gaps yes and it's also radical because it's not just saying there are gaps but business as usual will take care of those gaps at some point it's mm. saying no there has to be a shift altogether in why these gaps have arisen in our understanding of why these gaps have arisen uh, so it's radical and it's interesting so it was a pleasure talking with you, Thank you. thanks to our listeners for tuning in